This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The eavesdropper motioned to his comrades. The train was coming. This was no regularly scheduled Lahore Express or Bombay Mail. On board, every passenger was Muslim. The men and some of the women were clerks and officials who had been laboring in the British-run government of India in New Delhi. With them were their families and their ribbon-tied files, their photo albums, toys, china and prayer rugs, the gold jewelry that represented much of their savings and the equally prized bottles of illicit whiskey many drank despite the strictures of their religion. On 9 August 1947, they were moving en masse to Karachi, 800 miles away, to take part in a great experiment. In six days, the sweltering city on the shores of the Arabian Sea would become the capital of the world's first modern Muslim nation and its fifth largest overall, Pakistan. This is Bookmark on The Bigger Picture with me, Uma Pagan Ampike Pagan. On the show today, I'm speaking to Nisid Hajari. He is the Asia editor for Bloomberg View, as well as the author of a brilliant new book on the legacy of India's partition. It's called Midnight's Furies, an excerpt of which you just heard. So uh, I, I'm Nisid Hajari, and I'm the author of Midnight's Furies, The Deadly Legacy of India's Partition. I caught up with Nisid at this year's edition of the Singapore Writers' Festival a few weeks ago. Here we are, huddled in a quiet nook on the roof of the Arts House on Old Parliament Lane. It, it's one of those things that I think my dad used to love reading about partition and independence and all of that stuff. And so it, I, and I used to pick up the books as a kid and uh, I used to watch Gandhi a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And and, and and what I liked about your prologue in particular was how in such a short space of time you laid everything out. You laid everything out that needed to be laid out. Mm-hmm. What a lot of fiction doesn't quite grasp is the that celebratory element which you talked about a little mm-hmm. bit in your prologue. Mm-hmm. About, people, the, about the about the moment of partition. The, that, the, at the your, moment of right, partition. Right, and and right. people were excited to leave Delhi and, 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 and were and were kind yeah. of excited about Pakistan. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean it was I mean it was a moment of triumph, right? In certain ways it was this was the culmination of this freedom movement that had been going on for half a century at that point. And you know, even if the country had been split, at least you had an independent army, you had people controlling their own fates. Uh, and and people across most of the country were were grateful for that. And of course, this idea that up to a day before everyone was fighting on the same side, now suddenly they had to well, not necessarily treat each other as enemies, but be on different sides. Right, right, right. Well, the problem was they had you know. So Nehru uh, in India, for instance, you know, his whole political life to that point had been fighting the British, and he and he imagined himself as a fighter, right? He didn't think of himself as a politician or a negotiator. He, he, was, he was on a crusade. And once the, once the British left, or once they become, became allies, uh, his crusade turned against Jinnah, right? And turned against Pakistan. And instead of seeing him as a fellow politician that he could negotiate and compromise with, 
he treated him in moral black or white terms. I mean, you look at the rhetoric at the time, he kept comparing um, the Muslim League to, to the Nazi brown shirts, you know, Jinnah is a fascist, all, all this kind of thing that, that just was, was not helpful at all. He was fitting him into a narrative that, that, that preexisted uh, and, and, and didn't suit him. In the beginning of your book, you um, have this line towards the end of your prologue in which you talk about how difficult it was to actually get this information. And, and, and you talk about embassy gossip and notes and memos and yeah. all of these things you had to trawl through because, you know, unlike the British, we're terrible at keeping these kinds of records. Mm. So talk to me about what you found and just how difficult it was. Mm. Yeah, no, it, I mean, I spent a full year in the archives uh, just, just reading. And, and I intentionally focused on the written record rather than doing oral interviews because people, you know, if you speak to them now, they're in their 80s and 90s. They would have been kids at the time. They wouldn't have any had any interaction with the leaders. Um, so I wanted to see, um, and, their, and their memories are faulty now. So I wanted to see what, what was reported at the time. Um, the British uh, uh, keep their official records much better than India or Pakistan. So up, up till August 15th, those records were mostly in the UK. Um, but... Uh, a lot of people have gone through you know, many partition books. Many people have gone through these these archives. There there isn't really a secret stash of of information, uh, but what there is, uh, there are two things. One is there are details that people didn't notice before, um, and that if you once you've read all the other books and you see uh, something that pops out at you that hasn't been been, been uh, used before, and then there are there are other sources. There are um, personal memoirs, unpublished memoirs. Everyone kept diaries, sent letters at the time. Well, the one thing that was very, very useful was the U.S. government, uh, State Department archives, because no one had really looked at them before. And these diplomats then uh, in, in Delhi at the time were keen observers of what was happening. They were they were doing interviews with all the major players. Uh, and they, they understood what was happening as well as the British or anybody else did. But their perspectives have been ignored until before now. Paint me a picture of the brutality that happened within those few weeks, uh, those initial few weeks, because like I said, a lot of what we've read in fiction or seen in movies, particularly Ben Kingsley's Gandhi, that's the one that kind of does the rounds. Uh, but like you rightly point out in your book, it's partition is seen as this brief moment in that freedom fight. But you actually say it's as brutal as some of the stuff we've seen in Rwanda, some of the stuff we've seen during World War II. No, exactly. And in some ways, it was a continuation of World War II. Remember, this was World War II. It ended in 1945. The violence in India started in 1946, right? I mean, there had always been riots throughout the centuries, Hindu-Muslim fights, but nothing like organized ethnic cleansing, which is what was started to happen in August of 46 in, in, in these great Calcutta riots, started to spread across the country and so on. So this was what happened in, in August of 47 was part of a continuum, right? It was a, it was a you know, there'd be an action in one place, there'd be a reaction in another. Uh, the, the, the tensions would build and build, fears would build. The whole reason, um, you know, the, the riots in August would never have happened if there hadn't been riots in March uh, in, in, in the Punjab. Uh, and you know, yes, it was uh, a short period of time, but it's fundamental to the way these two countries were born, the way they think of themselves, the way they look at each other today. This wasn't an aberration. You, you can say, well, Hindus and Muslims lived together in peace in India, and that's very true. Um, they lived in peace before that as well. But this was, uh, you know, these, these were people 
killing each other. Nobody was making them do it. These were their leaders were encouraging it to some extent. Certain leaders were, uh, and and they have yet to sort of fully own up to their responsibility for that, which makes it hard to move beyond it. It makes it hard to look at the other side and see a friend rather than an enemy because you still blame them for for something that you you know you think is this was entirely their fault. It wasn't you know we were we were the the innocent party in, in it. Reading your book, I'm I'm curious to know if you worked out a timeline which was a point of no return in the sense that there's the same people crossing over a made-up border and that kind of transition doesn't happen overnight it takes a while for that psychology to sink in and do you know when that was when Pakistanis felt okay we're different now I think it, it happened within a year of, wow, of, that is quick, immense, right? Because it, it, and and not entirely because of the riots. I think I think even if you had had six weeks of these terrible riots, all these people have been killed, and you had all these refugees, it still could have been a crisis that would bring the two countries together, right? Leaderships on both sides. Their countries were being disrupted. Their economies were being disrupted. They needed to put a stop to this and restore stability. This could have united them. It didn't because of the the competition for these states for for. Uh, Kashmir and Hyderabad in particular. So once you had two nation states competing for territory with an army is involved, then it became more than a Hindu-Muslim thing. Then it became more than a, than a Punjabi thing. Then it was two nations uh, uh, fighting each other. There was a um, an observer, an American observer at the time, a reporter named Phillips Talbot, who um, you know was was in India at the time in Pakistan, and then went back at the beginning of 1950. So end of 1949, it finally signed a ceasefire in Kashmir under the UN, and. In, in January of 1950, he wrote that uh, the one thread holding all of Pakistan together was hatred of India. <laughs> and it, it went from the generals at the top to the taxi drivers at the bottom. And it and also then, seems like the one thread that holds India together, mm. as in Muslims and Hindus in India together, mm. is when there is something going on with Pakistan, because then they're all Indians. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it's useful to both sides. I mean, people like to say, oh, Pakistan didn't have a reason for being and, and, and therefore they're using this. And th- there is there is some degree of shoot to that. Part of the problem also is that Jinnah, who was a singular figure in Pakistan, died within a year of independence. And the, 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 his followers, people who were left, had needed something to, to you know, uh, demand obedience from their from because the citizens. Because nobody knew he was sick as well. People, well, they, actually, this is an interesting, uh, interesting myth. A lot, you'll hear a lot of times that, that, that he was secretly had TB and a doctor knew it and if only a Mountbatten had known things would have been different. He had been sick for decades. <laughs> he would smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. There are many times, many points at which he just had to disappear for six weeks and go off and rest in the hills. So yes, he was sick at the time, but nobody could, would, would have known. He didn't know himself that he was any more sick than, than, than before. Because the story you hear as well, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot, especially with Indians of a certain generation, is that you know if, and they blame Gandhi for this, and they say that you know if Gandhi had just let Jinnah be the prime minister of India, Nehru could have been prime minister after a year, and that, but Nehru wanted to be the first prime minister of a free India. Yeah, you do you do hear this all the time, um, and I don't think it's true. There there was never there was never a point at which uh, anyone was going to make a realistic offer to Jinnah to to be prime minister, and if they had, he he wouldn't have accepted it. He would know that that as soon as the British left, he would be thrown out. There is there is no way he could have possibly trusted a parliament run by Congress to keep him in power as, as prime minister. So, Reading your book, and I, I don't know if this is a depressing takeaway, and I don't know if you actually intended it, but it seemed like it was inevitable that 
Pakistan would happen. There was no scenario in history where this would not have happened given that. That's interesting. No, actually, I do think um, that it was not inevitable. And as um, as late as a year before independence, uh, in the spring of 1946, Jinnah had agreed to to keep a united India, right? Um, and he did so for for very clear strategic reasons. This, this wasn't emotional. It, uh, British generals had commissioned a study, and and told them essentially that Pakistan would never be able to defend itself against a Soviet attack unless they had the might of the Indian army behind it. So uh, he, he decided that he would have to accept this compromise. It was only after Nehru cast doubt on the compromise that he that he decided that he couldn't um, trust Congress and, and, and go forward with it. After that, it was it was still not inevitable until it actually happened, but it was more and more likely that, that it would happen. But I, I guess the point I wanted to make in the book was even if it did happen, there was nothing inherently wrong with that. You know, countries have been split all the time. That's right. And that's, you know? and that's the thing. It, it felt to me like the forces of history were pushing this, right? Despite that compromise and all of that. But at the same time, what I took away from that was you could live in peace and harmony. There was exactly. nothing, there was nothing inherently, there was no inherent conflict between these people. No, these two countries at birth had more in common with each other than any other two countries on earth. There is no reason they couldn't have and shouldn't have been friends. And this is what Jenna said all the time. Why can't we be like the US and Canada with a friendly border between us, separate armies, but we're, we're you know, get along perfectly well. There's between no Malaysia and Singapore? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so what about today though? Have we, I mean, so over the years, and I guess over the last 50 years, politicians use this rhetoric as bargaining tools, as vote-gathering tools. Where are we in 2016 with regards to politics and partition? It's, it's frightening, actually. I mean, I would have thought, you know what, so, so, so one question you always get uh, in India, if I go do readings there and so on, is why, why another partition book? Why, why do we care about this now? And you, you just have to ask them to look around and read the newspaper. You know, the, the, if you see what's happening now in Kashmir, the tensions between these two countries, this all goes back to partition. It, 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 the rhetoric being used now is word for word the same kinds of things the two sides used to say to each other. And part of the reason, there are many reasons why this is happening, but part of the reason that it still happens is because they have refused to or, or been unable to agree on a common narrative of, of what happened at partition. They still believe, each side believes the other was entirely at fault. And, and if you believe that, then you can believe all sorts of other things about the, you know, the Pakistanis genuinely believe India doesn't want them to exist uh, and, and, and poses an existential threat. You, if you want to hear that, you can go on Indian TV and you can hear people saying things that sound like that. And the Indians think Pakistan has always been trying to undermine Kashmir, always been trying to undermine India. You can find evidence for that too. And on a public level as well, on a person-to-person -person level, that rhetoric still carries weight? It's, well, so it, 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 uh, people always say, Indians who go across to Pakistan will always say, like, oh my gosh, everyone was so nice. Uh, you know, we had so much in common and, and the food was the same and people were so generous. And you want to shake them and say, well, what did you think did you they expect? were going to be? Of course they were expect? exactly the same. And you should know that by now. But th uh, that's, that's if you have a one-on-one -on -one interaction. Yet... People who watch TV, people on TV, you know, you go to other parts of India and, and they, they'll say the nastiest things about the other side. But you're right. We get that same rhetoric with Israelis mm -hmm. and painting all Jews with the same brush or 
uh, whenever you hear some, whenever you read some news story about some American going, look, Muslims are like us too, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, because exactly. they've met a Muslim family. Exactly. There's one, there's one, you know, these are good Muslims. They, they're okay. But, but the country or the government or the army, some, you know, however you want to phrase it, they're, they're the enemy. We don't hear enough about any kind of progress that happens within the government's talking about these things. Yeah, yeah, the, because it always gets derailed. This is the problem. If you start at the government level and try and do it from the top down, any negotiations you have are always vulnerable to disruption by any random terrorist group, right? Anybody can 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 main, launch a, an attack in Kashmir or somewhere else. And it and, becomes an Indian attack or a Pakistani exactly, attack. And then it's impossible to continue talks. What you need to do is you have to start at the ground level, or you have to do both, but, but you need a cushion at the ground level. You need trade to happen. You need people on both sides of the border who have more invested in peace than they do in war. So then when an attack happens, you have a lobby on either side saying to their governments, no, don't overreact. You know, we have this, we, we don't want to jeopardize these ties that we have and so on. Right now, because there are no ties, there's nothing to jeopardize. So of course, the easy thing to do is to, is to cut off talks, start go chest beating on, on, on cable TV, uh, and then start all over again six months later, because there is no way around this. This is the other thing. People, I don't know what either side see, uh, thinks that the, if, they, if they think they can just ignore this problem. It's not going to go away. It's going to have to be dealt with sooner or later. One bit that often gets ignored or not spoken about enough is the Sikh Punjab story in this whole scenario, because we focus so much on the Muslim yeah. Hindu clash that yeah. we forget that these people were stuck in between. Yeah, no, exactly. This is something that, that even surprised Actually me. in between. Yeah, the, the, you know, it, it is always portrayed as a Hindu-Muslim clash. Uh, and, and the fight for Pakistan was described in those terms. And that may help, that may explain why Pakistan was created. It doesn't explain why there were such terrible riots. And it was the Sikh community, uh, you know, not to blame them entirely, because obviously they were reacting to 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 um, attacks on their own community by by Muslims and so on. But if they hadn't um, existed, if they hadn't been in that particular part of the Punjab and the border hadn't split their community in half, and if they hadn't been a particularly militarized community having served in the army and so on, I don't think the riots would have been as swift and terrible and violent as, as they were. You look at the other side, um, at the Bengal side, and people always say, you know, oh, well, no one ever talks about the violence there because there wasn't much, really. I mean, there really wasn't. And that's because you didn't have this third community uh, between the two. What about the economic legacy of what this conflict has caused? Mm -hmm. I suppose it's always a nice way to keep the military machine running mm -hmm. on both India and Pakistan's side. And that is good for the economy in a certain way. Mm -hmm. But in my head, it always feels like if we had solved this problem 50 years ago, both these countries, which are, they aren't, I, I don't like calling them poor countries because they're not poor countries, but at the same time, the people are poor yeah. in these countries. Yeah. Yeah. And I keep thinking that the people would be much better off as opposed to the governments. Definitely. I mean, if you had, if you had wise seeing leaders who would actually devote more of their budgets to education and health than to the military, uh, you would be much, much better off. I mean, the, the, the fact that they've had been militarized states for 70 years has drained resources away from very important areas. And that rhetoric has mobilized the people to buy into it, though. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, if you look at the Pakistan side, you know, the the you understand why the Pakistani army would keep up this rhetoric, right? Because it keeps the flow of money coming to Correct. them. And, and, they pay, and they can pay for their all their retired generals and so on. But they can only do that if the people support them. And they, the people support them because they believe the narrative that's that, that's being put to them, that India is out to get us, India is out to... 
uh, undermine India doesn't accept our existence. And where did they get that from? How, why is it confirmed? It's because you have a bunch of people in India saying things that sound like that. And the same, same was true in, in 1947. Uh, Nehru and Gandhi might have had the purest motives, but there were other Congress leaders who were actively saying, Pakistan will never survive. In two years, they'll come back to us, you know, and saying this almost gleefully. So, of course, what are you going to think if you're a Pakistani other than that? At which point did they come to the realization that there wasn't going to be reunification? I think that was probably pretty quick. I don't, I don't, um, I think after uh, the Kashmir war, I don't, I don't, there probably were still some people in India, but there was no realistic. There was never um, a movement, was there? Not, not that I'm aware of. No, nothing, nothing that was strong enough or or, or real to, to bring the two together. One last question for you. In all of your research, who was the hero of this story? Who were the heroes of this story? It's a really good question. And because the, the, um, I have to admit on, on, on a pessimistic note, that I found no heroes, right? <laughs> that, that everybody was to blame to one degree or another, every leader, including Gandhi, right? Um, uh, and Gandhi in some ways more than, than some others. Um, at the same time, there were, everybody also had some some good in them as well. I mean, I, I do think that all these leaders had, if not pure intentions, at least decent intentions, right? They wanted the best for their for their citizens as they as they saw it. Um, you know, ne- people have said that the book is more more positive towards Nehru than, than Jinnah. Um, I actually uh, would disagree with that. I think I think the book is is more favorable to Jinnah than, than most Indian um, uh, narratives are. But Nehru, um, for all his mistakes, and there are many, and I, and I do hold him as responsible as Jinnah for for the fact of partition happening. Uh, the one thing he did after the riots was fight to keep Muslims a part of India, right? And this was not a popular position at the time. It's not a popular position now. He was risking his political position. He was risking his life. I mean, there were people, you know, Gandhi was assassinated by a Hindu nationalist. There were people found in, in Nehru's crowds with grenades who wanted to kill him. Uh, but he, he, and he fought against his own cabinet, but he insisted that Muslims were full citizens of India. And if he hadn't done that, uh, we'd be in a very different situation today. That was Nisid Hajjari. He is the author of the brand new book, Midnight's Furies, The Deadly Legacy of India's Partition, which you can find at all good bookstores. I highly recommend it. This is Bookmark on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.